grew stronger and developed their ethnic identity during the Civil War era, even as a poor immigrant group in a weakened minority party like the Democrats. They did face a long and difficult struggle, but their ethnic ties were tested during the Civil War and ultimately strengthened during their service to the Union. And they were able to challenge that overwhelming Protestant population in the United States and create a multiculturalism in the United States that, you know, we still see today. And welcome to the Irish at War podcast. I am your host, David Cummins. Now, first off the bat, I gotta apologize. I haven't been able to release a podcast episode in a number of months. Basically, I've been swamped under with a heap of things going on in my private and personal life. I've been renovating the house, there's been work, and then there's been a couple of personal issues as well. But thankfully, I'm back. We'll have this episode today with Abby Smithmeyer, PhD student talking about Irish ethnic identity in the Irish Brigade during the American Civil War. Then I should have an episode on World War I with Dr. Gavin Hughes, and then I interview Wayne Fitzgerald, one of the authors of the new book, Shadow Warriors, which is all about the Irish Army Ranger Wing. All that and more is coming up in the next couple of days and weeks. For those of you who don't know, you can find me on Twitter at Ireland Battles. You can find me on Instagram at Ireland Battles. And if you can, please support me on Patreon. You can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish at War. Basically, to run this podcast, to run this blog, to run the Twitter page, it costs a huge amount of money. Everything from research, buying books, archives, even the website alone costs 100 euro. So all of this costs a lot of money and it's difficult to keep it going without your support those of you who do support me thank you so much it means the world to me that you're able to be so generous to help keep this going but let's get back to today today i'm talking with phd student abby smithmeyer abby as she'll explain herself was a battlefield tour guide at the Battle of Fredericksburg and is now pursuing her PhD. She was kind enough to send me her thesis, which was all about how the Irish soldiers maintained their ethnic identity in the face of nativism, racism in both antebellum and post-war America. So let's get stuck into it. Hope you enjoy. So, Abby Smithmeyer. Give us a brief introduction of who you are and what you do, please. Sounds great. Well, I do appreciate the opportunity talking with you. Um, I will be starting my PhD at West Virginia University in a couple weeks here. And I just completed my master's in 19th century U.S. history uh, in May. And I focused on the New York Irish during the Civil War. Uh, for my master's thesis, and uh, that's something that I want to continue uh, through my PhD as well. Yeah, like uh, you sent me your 
your master's thesis. Uh, I have it here, printed out, all of all like 155 pages of it. But yeah, it's brilliant. It's really, really interesting. Um, Appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. Um, you were saying that you used to be a battlefield tour guide. Tell us a little about that, would you please? Yeah, three summers ago, I worked at uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I was really fortunate enough to be able to give tours of the Fredericksburg battlefield. And while I was working there, you know, you see so many people coming um, and are very interested in the Irish Brigade. And I think that's really a major story. You know, when you think of the Irish Brigade, mm-hmm. uh, most people think of Fredericksburg. So I, I was really interested in that. And as much as that story is very interesting and important to the battlefield itself, I think it's become very romanticized um, and it sort of ignores the disillusionment and despair that the members of the Irish Brigade and the larger Irish American community felt after that battle in particular. Um, And I think that's kind of been forgotten. And so uh, that sort of stuck with me as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to write on for my master's thesis. And uh, I also noticed that even though there were such a large amount of Irish Americans that fought during the American Civil War, I felt like their experiences uh, during the Civil War was very understudied. And so I wanted to hopefully make an important contribution to the field by highlighting their experiences and how the war impacted um, their communities in New York and and, in the U.S. at large. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely massive interest in the Irish Brigade. Um, I know when I was talking to Damien Shields about this, like, you know, we were kind of saying that it's funny because the Irish experience in the American Civil War isn't really well talked about, and certainly not in schools uh, in Ireland, but of the Irish involvement in this American Civil War, that's the most famous, even though it's most right. Irish don't serve in the Irish Brigade, you know, they serve in just non-ethnic uh, units, but they w- the Irish Brigade would be the most famous unit, but it's interesting that. Um, right. But like that, in your in your thesis, like you cover so much from like like every aspect. It's it's I found it fascinating. Um, really, really did. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So like, I mean, let's talk yeah. then. You you talk about the Irish immigrant experience. You know, antebellum mm-hmm. uh, America before the war breaks out in New York, and you solely focus on New York. So For sure. You talk about you know the social, economic, the religious status. You know. Um, and basically, you touch on some of the points that we talked about with uh, Damien Shields, you know, like one in four people in New York in 1860 was Irish. So, I mean, like, if you just want to tell us mm-hmm. about the, the Irish immigrant situation there, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you definitely said it, even though uh, the Irish Brigade is the most famous and, you know, you think of New York when you think of Irish Americans mm-hmm. during the Civil War era, Um you know, looking at the Irish Brigade or even New York doesn't tell the full picture uh, of the Irish experience during the Civil War era. But I felt it was important to highlight those individuals because they're the ones that are getting the most attention because of how large the population is in New York and how famous the Irish Brigade was um, both during and after the Civil War. But just to kind of highlight the Irish immigrant situation in Annabellum, New York, um, I've got a few statistics about in my thesis, but because I think it's important to highlight how how large the population was and kind of what most recent immigrants were experiencing yeah, in New York and yeah. you know the larger northeastern cities. So 
I mean, as your listeners would know, you have about 1.5 million Irish, mostly Catholic immigrants leaving Ireland between 1845 and 1855 during, or because of the potato famine. And they're mainly sticking to the major port cities of the Northeast. They really don't have the capabilities to move outside of where they land. So you're having these large uh, Irish enclaves forming in places like New York, um, Boston, Philadelphia to a lesser extent. And like you mentioned, um, you're seeing about 80 to 90 percent being classified as unskilled workers. Um, 90 percent of them are going to be Catholics. Mm-hmm. And something that I re- hadn't noticed or hadn't known until uh, I started doing the research is about one third of those only spoke Gaelic, um, right. well, which was really fascinating to me. So you don't think of Irish immigrants not being able to, you know, you know, you think of them as different than like German immigrants, but you know, a lot of them are, are having to deal with the same issues. And then between 1845 and 1851, um, New York housed about 12% of America's Irish population by 1860, you know, right before the war starts, you had more than 200,000 Irish-born individuals out of total population of 800,000 in New York. So wow. it's a massive group of Irish-Americans, um, and they're dealing with a lot of na- nativism, um, mm. especially because they are Catholic. So you're seeing a lot of Americans that aren't exactly thrilled with these masses of Irish Catholics uh, coming to the Protestant-dominated United States and not wanting to relinquish some of their their ethnic traditions so it's a it's a definitely an interesting situation and it definitely impacts their experience in the united states when they arrive yeah i mean the know nothing party they're just it's incredible you know uh, like just how how much they f- it's not how much they fear they kind of both fear and hate Catholics, especially Irish Catholics, they don't hate yeah. as much like German Catholics or any, you know, but it's mostly just the, the poor Irish Catholics they really, really hate. And right. Like, from reading your thesis, I saw like Samuel Morse, you know, who invented the Morse code. Mm-hmm. He hates them. So I was like, he's off my list of cool people. Um, and, then, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a, a Beecher Stowe as well. Um, and then I, mm-hmm. I, I remember reading somewhere else, but like Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. She was, I think she was part of the Know Nothing Party as well, but she certainly harbored strong anti-Irish feelings as well. Um, certainly when, like, I remember they were talking about, or was reading about how she was trying to hire, um, like, maids, and she was just like, no Irish need apply, or she would only call Irish, like, Bridget. Like, any Irish people, she would just call them Bridget. So, tell us about nativism and the, the Know Nothing Party, please. Yeah, of course. Um, well, you have a... Like you said, Samuel Morris, Beecher Stowe, Louis May Alcott. I mean, they're they're very they have very strong beliefs, and they're very prominent individuals um, in the United States during the antebellum period. So they have a platform to talk about these issues, and they make their opinions very well known. You know, Harriet Ward Beecher, who's the brother of the abolitionist and author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, mm. He, he called for Protestants to rise up against the Catholic menaces of the nation. Um, and then you see people like um, Morris who claim that 
monarchies in Europe were sending Irish Catholics and, you know, other Catholic groups to the United States to take over the United States. Um, he's actually publishing articles in prominent newspapers uh, to get his word out. So they're very much under attack in a lot of ways. And then you see the rise of the Know Nothing Party um, attacking these immigrant groups that are coming in. Um, they definitely feel threatened by Irish Catholics and feel as though they're being attacked um, because they're mainly Protestants in the United States. And I, the thing that I thought that was the most interesting were these anti-Catholic popular press you know, writings that mm. were coming out during the antebellum period. So one of the most popular ones was Six Months in a Convent by Rebecca Reed. Oh, yeah. Um, she published this, yeah. It was, I mean, it was completely a fabricated story about, you know, the abusive practices of nuns and Catholic rituals that, you know, would have been shocking for Protestants to read. Yeah. Um, and it became extremely popular, um, bestseller within, you know, a month of its publication. In the first week, it sold over 10,000 copies. So this is what people are are thinking when they hear about these Irish Catholic immigrants, and it's obviously putting a bad reputation on Catholics um, when they're coming to the United States. And then on top of that, you have most of these Irish Catholics, you know, as unskilled workers, you know, they're very poor coming Mm -hmm. from, you know, the famine. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely causing a lot of problems in the United States, and it's not giving the Irish a very good reputation um, when they're coming. So, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, um, And it's funny how that book then, you know, the whole saying, life imitates Irish, because uh, as you wrote about in your thesis there, the Irshline Convent in Massachusetts, you know, gets burned because yeah. of that, like because of the novel, you know, that they just go down and, and they burn uh, this Irshline Convent. But as you say as well in your in your uh, thesis, you know they pass by one or two German Catholic churches and they leave that alone. But it's it's the Irish Catholics right. that they have their eyes set on. And I was I was watching yeah. I was watching Ken Burns' Civil War do- um, documentary there the other day, and they mention a couple of the people that you mentioned. I think it was Beecher Stowe and one other person who s- escapes my mind. Um, but but like that, they mention you know how how they they weren't very fond of the Irish as well, you know, but yeah, yeah. something like that. And I mentioned, like, as soon as they, his name popped up, I was like, yeah, you're off, off the list as well, mate. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so y- you talk, you know, basically, um, in a nutshell, you're talking about, you know, how the Irish maintain their ethnic identity throughout, you know, the right, antebellum right. period, but throughout the war as well. So, I mean, for those who don't know or don't have a full idea of what, ethnic identity is, if you want to just give us a, you know, a brief explanation of what that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure other people define it differently, mm, but of course. Um, to me, you know, but when the Irish come to the United States, even though they're going to adopt uh, U.S. customs, um, they're going to keep things that are inherently Irish um, with them, and they're going to hold on to those. So you know, most of them are going to remain Catholic. Um, they're going to, you know, keep a lot of their ethnic traditions like St. Patrick's Day. You know, they're going to hold similar backgrounds that are going to be important to them, and they're not going to want to completely become American. And so 
in a lot of studies that have been done on the immigrant experiences during the Civil War, there's this common argument that the U.S. Civil War Americanized immigrants. So um, I tried to really argue against that in my thesis because I found that the Irish, especially in major cities like New York, in many instances, um, their wartime experiences underline nativist prejudice and often segregated them into distinct units or distinct, distinct communities. And you see that in New York uh, before the war even, because even though they're coming into a major U.S. city, they're often staying um, with other Irish immigrants. Um, and so even though they're in this major city, they might not become, you know, might not be in contact with native-born Americans mm. in a lot of instances, other than maybe their jobs or, you know, things like that. But they're they're very, very much sticking to their communities, um, making like almost small Irish enclaves in the United States. And you even see that in the war. So even though most Irish soldiers aren't going to be enlisting in ethnic units, mm -hmm. um, you even see them if, you know, they have Irish backgrounds that they might become tentmates or they might become friends. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of an example of how, even though they're in the United States, they're still maintaining some of their ethnic identity that's, that's very important to them. But I also wanted to highlight in my thesis that they're still adopting other identities. So even though their ethnic identity might be the most important at, at many times throughout their life, everyone holds a multiplicity of identities. Um, and some of those identities will become more important during certain points in their life. So although they often identify as Irish or, you know, they show their Irish ethnicity, they're also going to identify as Americans, as soldiers, as citizens of New York, as Democrats, as workers um, throughout different points of their lives. And that might be more important. Um, so I wanted to highlight that multiplicity of identities within my thesis as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, really interesting that you do talk about that quite a bit, like while they do maintain their Irishness as such as kind of at the forefront of their ethnic identity, they do, you know, pick and choose other bits and pieces that they certainly like about, you know, Americanisms or, or, or whatever, uh, or whatever other uh, um, bits and pieces that they like that they kind of want to bring on board, which I thought was really fascinating as well. So with roughly 100 50, 180,000 Irishmen. The reasons to enlist mm -hmm. are varied. Some of them, you know, do think it's to pay back, you know, the union or pay back their new adopted country. Um, others because of the Democratic Party and they're strong believers in that. Others to kind of show that, you know, these poor Irish immigrants, you know, they're, they're able to stand up for what they believe in and help their new country, America, in the time of need. But what I found mm -hmm. fascinating was, and you know, and, and really, like the reasons to enlist by and large was economic. But what I found econ uh, what I found fascinating was your point there in your thesis about how in Boston they were the lowest rung of the economic society. Yeah. African Americans had a better standing than you said. Like that was, I thought that was fascinating as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in Boston, like you mentioned, and I mean, it's not unique to Boston, but. It was definitely evident um, in Boston in the antebellum period that, you know, African-Americans were at a 
higher economic status than than most Irish Catholics during the antebellum period. So you can definitely see that economics played a major role in why Irish, many Irish Americans enlisted in the, the Civil War to get that steady paycheck. Um, and you see that even before the Civil War breaks out, because for a lot of men in particular, um, you know, they're not finding steady employment before the Civil War. And so the military was a, a great economic reason for enlisting in the military before the war. So in the first two years of the 1850s, foreigners comprised the majority of the U.S. Army because um, they're getting a steady paycheck that they can rely on yeah. um, throughout the entire year. And just to give you like a little bit of an idea, out of approximately 5,000 enlistments during the first two years of 1850, less than 1,500 were native-born Americans, while over 3,500 were European immigrants. And of that 3,500, over 2,000 came from Ireland. So it was a very big deal for Irish immigrants to look to the military for economic assistance. And you can definitely see that when they're enlisting in to fight for the Union during the Civil War as well. Yeah, like I, I have the number here. It's 2,113 you know, out of yeah. uh, 3,500, like that's incredible. But yeah, like that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the, the army provided three square meals a day, clothing and, you know, um, and regular pay, which if you were the poorest of the poor, it's, it, you know, it's better than nothing. Exactly. And like that, when you read, when you, when you read some of the accounts of some of the soldiers, you know, and they're talking about getting, getting clothes that, you know, they've never gotten new clothes for the first time. Uh, they've never got clo new clothes in their lives. And they're like, this is the right, best right. jacket I've ever had in my life. You know, <laughs> I've got trousers and there's no holes anymore. Trousers that like, you know, like down, to my, down to my ankles, you know, and they're, it's, it's just right, right. like, it's for us in this day and age, it's, it's hard to think about how poor they are, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not just economics that caused sure. these guys to, to enlist, you know, there's a huge number of reasons. Um, and religion is another big thing for them as well. Archbishop Hughes, yeah, the uh, Archbishop of New York, he's a massive big thing for them. But also the, the role of religion in chaplains, most famously um, Father Corby, who at the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, uh, grants absolution to all the Irish Brigade, you know. But tell us about the role of religion and, and uh, religious figures for the Irish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you mentioned Archbishop Hughes, um, Father Corby. I mean, these are very prominent individuals within the Irish American community in the United States. So they're going to garner a lot of support and their beliefs are going to be adopted by a lot of Irish Americans throughout the United States. Um, and I was, I mean, I obviously knew that Catholicism played an important role in the Irish experience, but I I was amazed to find accounts of how important the religion factored into how how soldiers enlisted into what units they they chose. So obviously, most Irish soldiers aren't enlisting in ethnic regiments, but um, the fact that ethnic regiments like the Irish Brigade always had Irish Catholic chaplains um, within the unit obviously helped them find Irish Catholic recruits. So you have some soldiers talking about how it would be horrible to be dying on the field of battle without a Catholic chaplain present to, to read off the last rites. And so you actually see some soldiers 
not wanting to, or men not wanting to enlist because they're afraid of, of dying on the battlefield without a Catholic chaplain present. Um, and so that is a reason why some of these ethnic regiments get a lot of volunteers. Um, and you see it in their recruitment posters as well. Uh, some of them will say, you know, always have a Catholic chaplain or, you know, yeah. um, this is a Catholic regiment. And so that definitely would have appealed to a lot of Irish Catholic men that, you know, they're guaranteed to have someone um, who believes in their religion and isn't, you know, don't, doesn't have that nativist tendency to be against them. And so they're going to be more welcome that way. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really interesting, like, reading that. Um, as you said, you know, there's such a big worry that they might die in the battlefield without, you know, being granted absolution or getting their last rights. And that's really interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, that like I said before today, you just wouldn't think about it like that. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting that they play such, that, that, you know, that really hangs on their head quite a lot. But you mentioned there um, with the, the recruitment posters and how, you know, they kind of talk about the importance of like the ethnic identity, you know, the Catholicism of it, mm-hmm. you know, and then you also mentioned like there's, you know, harps and shamrocks and all these Irishisms or little Irish things, you know, to, to, yeah, you know, grab their attention and bring them in. Be like, oh, come on in, join the boys. You know, they're all Irish way. Um, <laughs> at the start of the war, it's like that, and then just as the war drags on, you know, they're like, all right, you know, the money just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, and the, yeah. the, the shamrocks. So tell us about that. Like, I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that was something that I found interesting as well because, like you said at the beginning of the war, you know, you see like Corcoran's Irish Legion or. For the Irish Brigade, you have these these harps, you have the shamrocks, you know, the appeals to Catholic uh, chaplains being in the unit. And once the war starts going and, and people realize that, you know, well, I still have to risk my life and I'm seeing my friends and family members become casualties and I'm reading about how horrible army life is, uh, it doesn't really matter as much, um, by 1863, 1864, um, and the money becomes a lot more important. So, you know, by the later end of the war, you have these recruitment posters that used to have the shamrocks and the harps and, and the Catholic, uh, calls. Now you have three fourths of the poster, uh, talking about how much you can earn, uh, through the bounty system. And, and so, I think it definitely shows how much economics was important mm-hmm. uh, by the end of the war, especially. And I think it, it also shows sort of a divide between the officers and the privates uh, and who's enlisting, because you see that too with like the Finians, um, with like Marr and Corcoran and, you know, these guys that are so bent on gaining military experience to use later on to, um, you know, help Ireland gain independence where most privates, even if they think that would be ideal later on, you know, they're worried about where they're going to get their next paycheck from. They're not thinking five, 10 years down the road of how they can get military experience to liberate Ireland later. Yeah. They're definitely living more in the moment because their, their problems are more present, you know? Um, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you predominantly deal with the Irish Brigade and then I suppose the the Irish Brigade come about after the Battle of First Bull Run or Manassas. Actually, you mm-hmm. called it Manassas 
when you first mention it, you call it first Manassas, and then the next paragraph you call it Bull Run, and I thought that was funny. <laughs> Which what what would you call it normally? Um, I I normally refer to it as Manassas just because um, like that's uh normally what you see when you like Manassas National Battlefield. Okay. Um, but you know I definitely use them interchangeably as you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I just thought because I know that you know. You know, kind of southerners would call it one thing, and then uh, northerners would call it another thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was just wondering. I thought that I might was that the reason or not? But anyway, <laughs> so at the Battle of uh, Bull Run, it, it basically it, it predates the Irish Brigade, but essentially we kind of have you know the all the nuts and bolts of it there. Anyway, we have Thomas Francis Marr, and um, you have the mm-hmm. 69th uh, New York Infantry there as well. So I mean, talk to me about that, you know, and how that went out for them. Yeah, absolutely. At First Manassas, you have the 69th New York State Militia, which was a unit before the the Civil War. They were a state militia, and they were led by Michael Corcoran. And so he's actually um, in charge of the unit at Bull Run. And Marr actually is in charge of a company of the 69th Mm -hmm. New York. But before the battle... um, both Marr and Corcoran are very interested in forming a Irish-dominated unit. Um, and so they were very interested in sort of gaining recruits and, and making this Irish unit in hopes partially to, um, you know, try and kind of change the, the way the Irish were thought of um, in America and show that they were very much in support of the United States and protecting uh, the Union preserving it but Corcoran gets captured um, Mm -hmm. and taken prisoner at Manassas and so after uh, his capture you're going to see Marr raise an Irish unit and he becomes commander of the Irish Brigade which was comprised initially of three uh, New York regiments the 69th the 63rd and the 88th New York and so he's very much interested in having this Irish unit And they're going to go on. And, you know, even though I think in a lot of instances the Irish Brigade is um, sort of overemphasized because they really don't tell the whole story of Irish experiences in the American Civil War since so many Irish Americans didn't serve in ethnic units. Yeah, definitely. They are the most famous unit. um, And native-born and Irish Americans looked to the Irish Brigade during the Civil War as kind of a, a way to understand how Irish Americans were supporting the Union, whether they were supporting it. Um, so if the Irish Brigade did a good job in battle, you know, that benefited the Irish American community as a whole. And if they didn't do good, then that also um, negatively affected how they were perceived by native-born Americans. So that's a big reason why I wanted to focus on them in my thesis. Yeah, it's funny how that, you know, they're not just fighting for each other, they're fighting for a bigger thing, you know, like they're fighting for Irish reputation, which mm-hmm. is probably like n- not what they're thinking about at all, you know, but like that, right, that burden right. has been thrown up onto their shoulders and they just have to deal with it, or whether they know about it or not. Um, and some of the stats that you have, like, are incredible. Of the 507 soldiers in that unit, 91% of them are Irish-born. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so we move then on to uh, Antietam. 
the same thing again. The Irish show up and they're carrying the Irish reputation on their backs and they get, you know, hammered, I suppose. Well, not just the Irish, but the whole Union Army get hammered and they get smashed. Right. Um, and, like, same thing again. Like, some of the figures that you have are incredible. Like, 540 casualties. The New York 63rd and the 69th have 59%, uh, sorry, 59 and 62% casualties, respectively. Like, just colossal. More than every second, man, yeah. getting just mowed down. Unbelievable. And then, let's move on to Fredericksburg, because, you know, that's where you're a tour guide, so you know more about that. And so, I'll shut up and you can tell me more about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, like we talked about earlier, uh, when you think of the Irish Brigade, you're probably going to think of Fredericksburg or maybe to a lesser extent Antietam. Those are like the two battles that you think of when you think of, you know, the Irish Brigade during the Civil War. Yeah. Um, And like you mentioned, the Union Army in both those battles is, is suffering tremendous casualties. It's not distinctly the Irish Mm. So, I mean, just as much as they're suffering, every other Union regiment is suffering just as much. And, you know, I mean, it was a devastating toll. But I think when you look at them all um, within a string and not just distinct battles, you really see how the Irish community suffered during the war. Because you have the Battle of Antietam. Everyone's looking at the Irish Brigade. Um as far as the Irish-American experience and and how they're perceived in the United States at that time. And so they're suffering tremendous casualties like other Union regiments. But even though they're suffering tremendous casualties at Antietam, um, there's talk after the battle that Marr was drunk Mm. and intoxicated during the battle. Um, So even though they're showing their patriotism and they're fighting and supporting the Union, some prominent generals in the Union Army, and it's picked up by the popular presses, um, the newspapers in the United States are claiming that, you know, their their commander was drunk. And so that doesn't help how Irish Americans felt in the United States. So um, obviously that's going to weigh heavily. And then after Antietam, you see the um, issuance of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And yeah. so even in the United States... Um, most most Americans aren't in support of the end to slavery. Um, most people would be very against that, but the Irish in particular are are very against um, the end to slavery. So that mm-hmm. just compounds the way they're they're feeling after the battle. And then you would go into Fredericksburg, um, and they just suffer horrendously. And again, there's some talk that Mar was drunk at the battle. And so for a lot of Irish Americans, you see these, this constant string of, of anger and perceived nativism against them. And so it just weighs heavily on how uh, they feel like no matter what they do, they're, they're being attacked by the United States, by native-born Americans. And so the disillusionment within Irish, um, the Irish American community after Fredericksburg in particular is very high. Um, they don't feel like their sacrifice is being appreciated, um, especially after Fredericksburg. So you, you have this this horrible casualties at Fredericksburg. Morale really sinks, and you see 
them wanting to recruit, recruit their losses. And even though other regiments are being sent home to recruit uh, their losses and regain their strength, the Irish Brigade is not allowed to, to go home. And even though that's probably not a sign of nativism, then there's no indication that that was actually a direct attack of yeah. them being Irish. Uh, Irish Americans felt like it was because they were Irish. So one soldier in the Irish Brigade actually wrote home to his mother. He said, we thought surely that our brigade was going home to New York, but we were kept back and would not be let go on account of we being Irish. I mean, so he felt like he was personally... Um, they were personally being attacked because of their Irish ethnicity. Um, the Irish American newspaper, which was the most popular newspaper in New York for Irish Americans, um, they said, it appears to me as if they were most anxious to blot out our race altogether. If the brigade were not so markedly and distinctly Irish, they would not have been treated with the positive injustice to which they have been exposed. So even if nativism wasn't at the root of, of these issues, the Irish American community felt that it was and that just adds to the disillusionment that they were feeling after Fredericksburg and Antietam. Yeah, yeah. You, you wrote as well that, you know, while it may not have been, it certainly did look like, you know, it was because of nativism or anti-Irish sentiment. Uh, and, and you mentioned that Maher had said that other units who had suffered as bad or not even as bad as the Irish Brigade, they managed to get home and recruit uh, but for those in the Irish Brigade you know they just have to fight on and I just want to mention the stats right, because right. like I think that you know when it's I think you just should because they're just so devastating like the 69th mm-hmm. they suffer 128 casualties out of 210 which is unbelievable yeah the 88th they suffer 50 percent the 63rd they're 44 percent and the 28th Massachusetts they suffer 158 casualties like just it's 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 hard to comprehend like you know just ah, the, the bloodshed yeah. you know and it's just withering and just they're been sent out again and again and it's just like there, there's no reprieve from it um which i find is, is absolutely yeah, fascinating yeah oh i mean you see you see it so you have the battle of chancellorsville in may they're able to recruit some members but by gettysburg you have soldiers in the brigade talking about how it's like a shell of a unit. Yeah. And yeah, so definitely um, is. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's, it's really bad at, at Gettysburg, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing a, a regiment on paper during the civil war should have about a thousand men. Mm. Now, obviously that's not the case by 1863 because of sickness and death and casualties but the entire brigade at Gettysburg numbered approximately 500, 500 men. Mm. So that's less than, uh, you know, a full regiment at the start of the war. So it's, you can definitely see how, how much of a toll the brigade felt by that point. And, and even to just keep their name as an Irish brigade and to show that, that ethnic identity, after Chancellorsville, they're actually reorganized into battalions. Yeah. Um, that way that each regiment wasn't going to be split up and put with non-ethnic units. So you see the three New York regiments split into three two-company battalions. The 116th PA was so under strength that the Army ordered it into a four-company battalion. Right. And you can see how important ethnic identity played into that because the commander of the 116th actually dropped rank 
and took a pay decrease just so he could stay with his men, That's which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, you wouldn't get too many people, you know, dropping dropping paychecks and dropping ranks just to serve with their own people. Uh, and yeah, that, that, right, right. that really does show kind of the, the love or, or the, the support, you know, or the want to stick with your own, um, especially in such times of need. So, I mean, mentioned Gettysburg, you know, I think Damien Shields was saying that more there are more Irishmen in a regular battalion who die rather than in the Irish Brigade. This guy goes to show the sheer spread of Irish people across the Union Army. So, I mean... Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned there, like... So, let's get back to the ethnic identity. And you had mentioned earlier on that the Irish are staunchly anti-abolitionists mm-hmm. because, well, for a whole host of different reasons, because, you know, they are democratic and the Democratic Party don't see the end of uh, slavery Really, the Republicans, you could probably argue, don't really want to see it either. But, um, and, and, and I suppose because of the whole economic thing, because they are the lowest of the low, they see that if emancipation comes through, they're going to have to compete with all of these freed African-Americans who are going to probably flock to the more industrial uh, cities in the north and they're going to be in contention for sure. you know jobs, putting food on their table sur- for survival, essentially. But I couldn't, I couldn't get over... Yeah, and, and let's be honest, like, you know, the Irish absolutely thought that they were better than African Americans purely because they were white, you know. So let's not let's not dance around that issue either. And of course mm-hmm. the most famous then, I suppose, the the boil over this, uh, the the most famous part of this then would be the draft riots of eighteen sixty three. So Yeah. Yeah, talk about that quite a bit. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean I mean you hit it on the head. Pretty much everybody in the 19th century would be racist to our standards. So it's not like the Irish are unique in that aspect. Mm -hmm. But like you said, they're they're Democrats. I mean, almost unanimously Democrats. Uh, Obviously, you can't say that about every single Irishman. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, Mm -hmm. they're siding with the Democratic Party. Um, They're anti-abolition. And so they're, like you said, they're threatened by... African Americans who, you know, they think that if they become free, they're going to come up to the the north and take away job opportunities that that they desperately want. And, you know, they see themselves above African Americans. So taking away slavery kind of puts them on the same level in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's definitely threatening for, for a lot of Irish Americans. And like I mentioned earlier with, you know, Antietam, Fredericksburg, the Emancipation Proclamation, and then these perceived nativist threats, everything kind of boils over in July of 1863 with, with the draft riots. So I think you, you really have to talk about the, the Enrollment Act and the commutation fee to sort of understand why they're so upset. So... When the war starts, it's all volunteering based. Um, there is no draft at that point for the Union. Um, but as time goes on, as the casualty count grows, as people open up their newspapers and receive letters talking about their, you know, their friends, their family members um, dying or you know being on that list, the romance of, of war kind of dissipates, and so you see volunteers really kind of dry up, and so. 
you have the Enrollment Act getting passed, and um, every, every area gets a volunteer quota. And if they're not able to meet that quota, then there'll be a draft in that area. And in July of 1863, there's meant to be a draft um, taking place during that time in New York. But there's also this commutation fee where you can pay $300 or you can buy a substitute. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of working class individuals, they can't afford this. And so just to give you an idea, I mean, $300 is, is a lot of money for, for anyone in, in 1863, but specifically for Irish, the Irish who, you know, are at the bottom of the economic position there. So, I mean, it's nearly a year's um, wages. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of instances, it, it would be even more than a year. So, um, you know, if you just look at like a, a labor worker in New York City, they might make a dollar a day. But you have to remember that a lot of these guys aren't working 365 days out of the year. Yeah. Um, they might be doing like seasonal dock work. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, less than $300 they're making uh, within a year. So, I mean, that's just a, a lot of money. Um, so they're very outraged by that. And so you kind of see this, this all come to a boil with the, the draft riots in July of 1863. And obviously it's not just Irish Americans participating in, this, yeah, in these riots. But, I mean, you see instances where, I mean, they're specifically targeting African Americans. They go after an African American orphanage, burn yeah. it to the ground. Killing purposely killing African Americans in New York during the draft riots, but like I said, that's not just Irish Americans, but mm-hmm. they're definitely singled out specifically for the violence. And even though prominent Irish Americans like uh, Archbishop Hughes and um, Marr, and you know these these very prominent Irish Americans within the community, you know they're they're angered by what happens, but they also try and stick up for the Irish community as a whole and point out that even though this was so horrible and this shouldn't have never happened, we weren't the only ones doing it. Yeah, they, And it wasn't, it doesn't represent the entire Irish American community. Exactly. Yeah. Like they tried to defend, they tried to defend the Irish, you know, kind of once again, back, you know, back in their own ethnic identity, you know, they're sticking up for their own people. Mm-hmm. And it's not right. just a case of, well, what aboutism, you know, kind of, well, well, the Germans were doing it and these guys are doing it as well. And you have to be like, yes, there were lots of Irish involved in it, but there was probably, well, and there's definitely more Irish not involved in it, you know, if, if you want to look at right, it like that. Right. So you can't carry all of them the bad end of the stick. But nativism being as bad as it was, you know, they just go, oh, in for a penny, in for a pound. All the Irish, especially all the Irish Catholics, they're all terrible. They're all racist. You know, look at what they did. They're they're disloyal, and you know they're anti-unionist because they're not filling up the ranks as they should. They're not supporting, you know, Lincoln. They're not, you know, they they're they're killing African Americans, and you know they just right. There's no nuance to it. And going back right. to the actual fighting, you know, what I found from reading your thesis is like again and again and again, the Irish are just looking for some recognition of what they've done in battle. Like mm-hmm. with those, with those casualty figures, you know, 69% or, you know, uh, 62% or whatever, like at any other battle and whatever other unit, 
they just look for some recognition for what they've done. And right. you know, quite often, you know, they, they do hold the line or they, they, they fight a, you know, a tactical withdrawal which saves, you know, the Union Army at so many different places or, or whatever it might be that they've done. They're just looking for some recognition. You know, it's not as if they're looking, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go home on, on or an or whatever. You know, they just want some recognition for what they've done, for this, the, the loss that they're having, and to be able to go and, you know, replenish num- their numbers because as a unit, they're no longer a brigade. They're just, you know, as right. I said, they're, they're companies now at this stage. I thought, I thought that that was fascinating the way it was just, they were just looking for some recognition, but because, because of this, you know, the overbearing, the nativist sentiment in America at the time, you know, they couldn't put their foot out of step because if they did, you know, they were right back to square one. And you could see that, as you mentioned in your thesis, they, the, the anti-Irish sentiment as the war progresses to, you know, 61, 62, the anti-Irish sentiment kindness has subsided quite a bit because of, you know, the fighting Irish spirit, I suppose. Right, yeah. And I mean, you you see that with the draft riots. So it's almost like any progress that units like the Irish Brigade made in putting a positive, um, you know, perception of the Irish American community just almost gets completely washed away because of the draft riots in New York City. And that's not to say that happened everywhere. So I'm trying to think of, of Ryan Keating's book, Shades of Green, he talks, he mainly focuses on uh, three communities outside of, you know, New York and Boston that you don't normally think of, but he focuses on three Irish, predominantly Irish regiments during the Civil War. And he talks about how, you know, because mostly those communities or those immigrants had been in the United States for, you know, a decade or so, um, when the draft riots take place, a lot of their community members actually stand behind them and don't show them as much nativism that you're seeing in New York. Um, so it's not to say that this whole experience um, and how the Irish in New York were treated talks or covers every Irish American in the United States during the Civil War era, but you definitely see um, how the larger community as a whole is perceived because of these negative actions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it's it's not just the the Irish men, uh, it's not just the you know the, the male soldiers on the battlefield that are getting this, uh, or the workers at home. Like even Irish women, as you mentioned at the start, like Irish women are suffering this anti-Irish sentiment as well. You know, mm-hmm. talk talk to me about like you know the discrimination that they they kind of suffer as well because it's rife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean. It's kind of interesting because women, Irish women, especially during the antebellum period, probably had an easier time finding a a job than some Irish men, especially because of the domestic um, labor. So if if a woman even in the north or a family even in the north could afford to hire a domestic servant, they're going to because that's seen as something, you know, that African-Americans or like you see immigrants um, um, doing. So a lot of them are able to find jobs um, in households serving as like cooks or domestic servants, household workers. Um, And so 
you see like by 1855 about three-fourths of New York's domestic servants were Irish so you you have a lot of Irish women um, finding labor that way but you're still going to see um, attacks because they're they're Catholic nativist attacks so if you open a newspaper if you you know go on newspapers.org and you know find uh go into the advertisement section um, during the antebellum or the Civil War period or even after, I mean, you're almost guaranteed to find some sort of ad that says no Irish need apply or mm. looking for Irish, German, you know, uh, European Protestants. So they're <laughs> yeah. pretty much always singling out Catholics. They don't want Catholics in their household um, if they can help it. So that's a very common thing that you're seeing. Um, and it's definitely impacted by the draft riots as well. So you're going to see that negative connotation towards Irish Catholic women after the draft riots, see sort of like an uptick in those, those ads in the papers as well. The role that Irish women play, I mean, like they don't just, well, uh, discrimination and job hunting aside, you know, they actually play a very important role for the ethnic identity or, or, you know, for Irish identity in New York and across the, the, the union, you know, with all the work that they're mm-hmm. doing, like they, they fundraise, they, they do a huge amount as well. So, you know, talk to me about the positive aspects of it as well. Yeah, that was something that I was really amazed by when I started doing the research is how much money they were able to raise um, and how much support that they were able to, to garner for the Irish American community and the community, their, you know, their family in Ireland back home. So, um, in August 1863, they had a famine relief, and they mm-hmm. raised about 20,000 pounds for for the famine relief in Ireland. Which is incredible. And then they also, yeah, yeah, it's a remarkable amount of money. And you see them organizing it, not just in New York, but they're trying to get soldiers that are in, you know, predominantly Irish ethnic brigades uh, or regiments, units to send money back home to, to support the famine relief. Um, they hold a patriotic ball in New York and they raise five to $6,000. And this is, I mean, that's remarkable money for anybody uh, during the 19th century. But to think yeah. that these individuals are predominantly very, very poor um, and to be able to raise that much money shows how important that ethnicity and that ethnic identity is to them because, you know, most of them are, are know what it's like to, to be products of the famine mm. and, and to suffer in that way. So it shows how connected they are with, with Ireland, um, even though they might be, might've been in the United States for five, 10, 15 years, um, it shows how important it is to them. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they never forget home or they never forget, okay, while they might have escaped the hardships of home and are still suffering hardships now you know they're still sending money and quite a lot of it like yeah. like you said like three hundred dollars you know was possibly even more than your average salary for an irish person you know to send twenty thousand right. across back home it's you know unbelievable but yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing that like that they never forget they never forget home essentially or they never forget ireland mm-hmm. which is kind of funny when you think about yeah. this kind of, this thoughts just popped into my head because like you mentioned at the start, there's that 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 Fenian idea that, oh, well, if a heap of Irish lads join the Union Army, they get trained up 
and then we'll be able to go and fight Britain. And that, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the, the Fiji invasion of Canada, it doesn't really amount to much. But yeah. the, the, the number of Irish that actually go home, you know, to do exactly that just doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's, it's right, right. nothing compared to what the Irish women actually are doing and the aid that they're sending home. It far outweighs what the Irish, uh, Irish men are doing, which is incredible right. you know, when you think about it. Yeah, and I think it it shows what's kind of more important to them. I mean, as, yeah. as much as, you know, a lot of prominent individuals wish for Irish independence, you know, that is impossible if you have hundreds of thousands of, you know, Irish men and women dying during the famine. So it shows what's more important to them and, you know, where their their hearts are and what they're trying to accomplish and and supporting those individuals and trying to give them aid. Yeah, definitely. They're a lot more kind of ear to the ground rather than head in the cloud, kind of, you know. um, Right. They're they're in the present, I suppose, which is is brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about St. Patrick's Day because you you, you do that comparison between St. Patrick's Day in 1863 versus St. Patrick's Day in 1864. Now, I want to be able just to find it because I have it earmarked. Just the crack that the lads have <laughs> in 1863, you know, <laughs> it certainly sounds like a savage party. And I have it earmarked. St. Patrick's Day in 1863, the quartermaster is sent to Washington, D.C. to get, basically to organize massively mass, um, which is good, um, to have, you know, festivities to celebrate Ireland's National Day, but also to have the crack. And this is what they come home with. (laughs) Half a roast ox, 35 hams, a stuffed pig with turkeys, chickens, ducks, small game, eight baskets of champagne, 10 gallons of rum, 10 gallons of whiskey, um, and lots more. And then... The two captains who were there to mix the alcohol punch, which I think was hilarious, uh, Captain Gossam and Captain Hogan, <laughs> they end up getting hammered drunk because they had to keep on mixing it and tasting it, just like mixing it and tasting it. And by the time they like, they just had to be sent home because they were just absolutely smashed drunk and couldn't do it anymore, <laughs> which I think is absolutely brilliant. But like that, that shows the importance of the, you know, the Irish identity to these soldiers and to be able to, it wasn't just a big party like it is kind of nowadays. There was religious importance to St. Patrick's Day and, you know, that's the recognition, just simple stuff like that, to be able to worship on their most important day of the year for the Irish. Uh, and that was the importance of the, you know, the Irish identity, the ethnic identity of the Irish, which I think is, is really important to them. But, the comparison then to 1864, I think, is just, it's like chalk and cheese, really. Chalking, yeah. Yeah, well, and even when you look at 1863 celebrations, so like you said, the religious importance of, of the holiday is is definitely there for uh, the Irish soldiers. So before any of those great festivities, which I'm sure they were phenomenal and they were mm-hmm. talked about not just by the Irish soldiers, but by native-born soldiers who participated in. Yeah, in and the, I saw that you said like that. You know, the, they send out invites to everybody else as well to come in and have the crack and have the party. Yeah. You know, which I thought was cool, and that's kind of 
yeah, as a big thing yeah. In so Ireland it wasn't well. it wasn't just for the Irish Brigade. Yeah, it wasn't exclusive. But but before, right, right. But before the the celebration, you know, you have, you know, the celebration of mass. Um, it you know it's a very somber occasion because they're they're sort of honoring all the the dead from the Battle of Fredericksburg that was just what uh, a few months beforehand. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important that they highlight the religious component of the holiday. But when you look at all the letters written by native born soldiers about St. Patrick's day, they only highlight how, you know, drunk all the Irishmen got, you know, um, the brawling, the fighting, you know, some of the fighting that took place on the day because they were so intoxicated. And so you can see the difference between what's highlighted by native born soldiers and what's highlighted by Irish soldiers, yeah. um, and that that religious component is missing almost entirely when you look at the native-born accounts uh, about the, the holiday. And then you see in 1864 the celebration in New York for St. Patrick's Day. Like you said, it's like it's like night and day what takes place. So, you know, I was I was just shocked that there was such a large celebration in New York in. 1864, because you had the draft riots taking place, you know, a few months beforehand. But you can see sort of why it was allowed by the participants in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in 1864. So they start out with with mass in New York City, and then you have the celebration that takes place. But most of the participants, and you see this in the Irish American newspaper, they talk about um, the different participants in the in the parade. There's a huge amount of temperance associations that that participate in the parade, and so you can kind of see how the Irish American community knew that they were going to be judged by how the celebration, you know, what what happened with the celebration. So if there was going to be a, a, a lot of intoxicated individuals and, you know, uh, if it was going to be very rowdy, that definitely wouldn't look good, especially coming off of the, the draft riots and how their sort of reputation had been dinged by that. Yeah. And so you see all these different temperance associations partaking, um, even have newspapers, um, native born newspapers talking about how they were so shocked that there, you know, there really wasn't any, any problems with the celebration. Um, and you, so you kind of see the difference in the celebration, not only how the Irish American community participated and um, celebrated it, but also how native born Americans sort of saw the celebration differently. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think like we mentioned before, the overbearing, nativism you know an anti-catholic sentiment it was just so much that they just couldn't step out of line you know which yeah. just when you compare it to you know 1863 and all the food and all the drink and then i forgot to mention you know the races they got horse races there's three-legged races um there's a sack race there's which this i thought was hilarious but there's a race for a greased pig uh, there's a yeah. pole climb for 10 days leave what I thought was hilarious uh, there's a dress parade you know just like just good fun kind of like exactly what you know you need after two three years of just 
war and death and uncomfortable living situation. And then 1864, it's just nothing, you know. And I think right, that, right. once again, like, there's that whole problem of just no recognition for what they've done for the union. Now, you can also argue the case, okay, with the draft riots, you know, maybe they didn't deserve it. But then again, that's the whole, it wasn't all the Irish, you know, but then, you know, mm-hmm. you open up that, that kind of worms. But certainly St. Patrick's Day of 1864, yeah, kind of just, it's it's a non-event in a sense. Like it's, and that's, right. yeah, it just it doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't sound like good fun. You know, <laughs> I know which one I'd like to be at. And you mentioned there the Temperance Society as well, like and how, you know, they kind of kept an eye on everybody in a sense. But you mentioned as well that they kind of, after the war, they really write themselves into his, uh, into the into the history and kind of big up the role a little bit, which is, you know, yeah. they self-inflate essentially. Yeah. And it, you see this, I think, especially with, you know, soldiers of the Irish Brigade after the war sort of, you know, they're, they're highlighting the sacrifice that they made after Antietam, after Fredericksburg. That's like becomes the, the most prominent um, story within the, the post-war memoirs. So, and I think that gets back to sort of how the Irish Brigade is remembered at Fredericksburg. So it's not about, it's not about how many or how horrible the battle took place. You know, the Irish Brigade becomes remembered as like, we got closest to the stone wall mm. and, you know, um, you know, no matter how horrible this battle was and how, like, there, there was no chance that we could win, you know, we showed our patriotism to the United States, you know, we fought to preserve the Union. Um, in the post-war mem- memoirs, uh, you don't see any mention of the draft riots, you don't see any mention of the disillusionment after Fredericksburg, you don't see any mention of, you know, their uh, outright anger and hostility towards the Emancipation Proclamation or African-American soldiers, um, you don't see any of that because the, they want to show the Irish in a good light and sort of do a little bit of, uh, you know, marketing in a way to mm. to show that they were patriotic and supported the union no matter what and kind of tra- change that the way Irish Americans were remembered after the war. And the Temperance Association is one of the ways that they do that. So Father Dillon was the chaplain of the... Uh, 63rd New York, and he was part of the Irish Brigade at the beginning of the war, and he actually forms this Irish Brigade Temperance Association. It's like one of the biggest, it's it's talked about in Father, in, in some of the post-war memoirs. That's really the only time you, you see mention of the Temperance Association, and they talk about how they get almost everybody in the regiment to to partake, and they get medals cast. Nice. And there's uh, a picture of the the medal in um, in one of the post-war memoirs, in, in Corby's memoir, uh, Memoirs of a Chaplain's Life. And so you see how he's using this perception that, well, we weren't, you know, intoxicated soldiers. You mm-hmm. know, we were pushing for temperance 
um, throughout the entire war. And, you know, he was trying to change that perception of like the drunken Irishman in his post-war memoirs by, by showing that, oh, look how many men participated in this. Even though when you look at the accounts from the Civil War of Irish soldiers in the brigade, like I, I haven't found one soldier that talks about the the Temperance Medal or the Temperance Association. The only record that I'm, I've really been able to find was in those post-war memoirs, or there are a couple accounts from the Irish American newspaper, and that's really about it. Mm. So you can kind of see how different, you know, the post-war accounts were to the accounts written during the, the Civil War itself. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's, it's almost as if they're trying to, well, that's, they're definitely trying to challenge the nativist account you know the Mm -hmm. anti-irish account which is great because who who better to write it than you know than than irish people themselves right Um, you know with being able to say well i was there on the front line for you you know so Mm -hmm. i think and and obviously throughout american culture i suppose you know being able to say that you were you know at gettysburg or antietam or wherever it was and especially like for fredericksburg being what 25 paces away from the stone wall the Irish get the get closest, you know, to be able to say that, yeah. kind of like, you know, that's that holds a lot of weight and a lot more, which I think is really interesting. Right. So the war ends, 1865. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Irish and all of their aims are met? Do you think that they're better off? You know, was it worth it? Well, I mean... Yeah, that's a that's a good question. It's a big one. Um, I yeah, it's a, it's a big question, <laughs> and I don't have a I don't think I have a yet a yes or no answer. Yeah, true. Um, for sure, but yeah, you see a lot of problems after the war. Obviously, it's not just you know a magic answer, and mm-hmm. you know they're going to deal with you know they dealt with nativism before, during, and they're going to deal with it after the war. Um, so it's not an easy struggle, and it's not. Uh, you know, serving in the Civil War, supporting the United States, doesn't magically erase all the the nativism and the problems that they were suffering before the war. So I guess in one sense, uh, it isn't necessarily worth it. But you do see strides being made, and especially with the Irish and their practice of voting in a block. So even though it takes a while, um, there's, they start making strides in politics, mm-hmm. um, specifically and, and really pushing to push for better rights that directly benefit them as an ethnic group, yeah. um, in the United States and particularly in New York. So you, you start seeing like a gradual increase in their political power due to their voting as a bloc. They have a lot of political activism that led to Irish-American dominance of New York City politics until the early 20th century. Um, you kind of hear of, like, Tammany Hall and everything like that. Mm. Um, so they do make strides in that way, even though you still see uh, Irish-born Americans occupying 50% of the worst-paying jobs in New York City after the war, uh, even though they comprise only 20% of the population. So they still have a lot of economic deficiencies that they're they're unable to you know get past or it it takes time for them to to make those advancements um 
And that all contributes to the fact that five Irish were arrested for every one German in New York City uh, during the 1870s. And so, you know, just seeing that, it's not just because they're Irish, it's because they have all these issues as far as, you know, their economic status and, you know, things like that that are definitely holding them back. But they are making progress. And you also see that with their religious advancements in New York. So in the decades following the Civil War, um, the Catholic Church constructed thousands of churches, cathedrals, colleges, seminaries. um, And this is all taking place in a Protestant-dominated nation. And so I think what you see, even though it's a a long and hard struggle for the Irish, um, you're seeing them stick to parts of their ethnic identity that remain very important to them. And they're not relinquishing that, you know, they're holding strong and that, that really benefits them in the end. So they only grew stronger and developed their ethnic identity during the civil era, even as a poor immigrant group in a weakened minority party, like the Democrats, they did face a long and difficult struggle, but their ethnic ties were tested during the Civil War and ultimately strengthened during their service to the Union. And they were able to challenge that overwhelming Protestant population in the United States and create a multiculturalism in the United States that, you know, we still see today. Brilliant. Okay, so, Abby Smithmeyer, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about Irish identity in the American Civil War. Thank you. Best luck in your PhD. Thank you so much. So there you have it, folks. Abby Smithmeyer and her thesis on Irish ethnic identity in the Irish Brigade during the American Civil War. Thank you so much to Abby for sending me her thesis. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Um, well done and best luck with the PhD in West Virginia. Hope you all enjoyed that. For more updates on Irish military history, you can find me on a day-to-day basis on Twitter. If you search The Irish at War, or my handle is at Ireland Battles. And the same on Instagram, it's at Ireland Battles. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can find me on Patreon forward slash The Irish at War, where for as little as three euro a month, you can help support this podcast. And for that three euro, you get bonus content, you get much longer posts, you get accessible links to do your own further research on each individual post that I post on that day. So, it's good to be back. Thank you so much for all the support. Until next time, good luck.